This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Dr. Brandon P. Cook from the Field Museum in Chicago. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Metriacanthosaurus, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. <laughs> but first, as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, and Bradley. Yes, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast and learning about dinosaurs, consider joining our growing community on Patreon at patreon.com slash I know dino. And just a quick note that the dinosaur of the day today is related to Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. And actually, since we are getting down to the last couple of months before Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom comes out, we've decided to do a special dinosaur of the day featuring a dinosaur that appeared in either the movies or the books up until the premiere date. Yep. And we're kind of scraping some of the lesser known dinosaurs from the movies. because Well, it turns out we did a good job and we've already covered a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Being in the 170s of episodes <laughs> and using dinosaur requests, a lot of people request dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. So, yes, some of them are lesser known, like Metriacanthosaurus. And jumping into the dinosaur news, this one made huge news. I'm not sure why it was such huge news. Because it's a carnivore. It, I guess, but it's a new Megaraptorin theropod from... Argentina, and it was... Don't cry for it. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> <laughs> this article is written by Juan Porfiri and others, hopefully I got that name right, including Matt Lamana, who we interviewed on this podcast, and I think he might have hinted at this dinosaur when we talked to him. It was published in Cretaceous Research, and the name of it is Tritayania rosalizae, and the Tritayania comes from Tritayan, which is a locality where the holotype was collected. I think it's actually just a very small city in Argentina, really in like northwestern Patagonia, they describe it as. And Patagonia is kind of the southern end of both Argentina and Chile. So it's like northern southern Argentina, <laughs> sort of near the Chile border. And the Rosalisai is in honor of Diego Rosales, 
who discovered the specimen and also did a lot of the preparation of the fossil. So a good reason to name it after somebody. We've seen fossils named after people for either preparation or discovering, and this guy did both. So well-deserved. And he's described as a fossil hunter, so I believe that's how he discovered it. I think he was looking specifically for dinosaur fossils in the area. Like I mentioned, it's in the Megaraptora family, which in a previous fun fact, back in episode 88, we kind of explained what Megaraptora is, and Megaraptor was named after raptors like Deinonychus and Velociraptor and those ones that have that cool claw that sticks up that they could potentially use for slashing or maybe climbing trees or something. And that's largely because when they found the first Megaraptorid claw, they thought that it was like a huge dromaeosaur claw, but it turned out that it was actually a hand claw, a big hand claw, (laughs) obviously. And because of that, it's kind of a weird name now, and it makes it also kind of uncertain where this dinosaur fits in, because at the time you'd think it was just related to dromaeosaurids. But if it's a huge hand claw, it's less certain. And, you know, being this one, especially in South America, it doesn't really fit in with some of the other South American dinosaurs. There's also been some found in Australia. So... We're not really sure where it fits in the dinosaur family tree. I think it's probably a Tyrannosauroid, so kind of loosely related to Tyrannosaurus, but it's still being debated. And unfortunately, with this find, they didn't find the skull or the hands. Oh, so you don't know about the jaws. Yeah, and you know we're missing some of the exciting bits. Although we have found jaws and hands, obviously, from previous Megaraptorans, but it'd be nice to get more. In this case, we found a series of five vertebrae in the back, which are all pretty good shape and they're kind of articulated, so you get a good representation of what its back was like. And then another series of seven vertebrae, two of them are from the lowest part of the back and then five from the sacrum. And as a reminder, the sacrum is the spine that goes between the hips. So in humans, that's basically the tailbone, but in dinosaurs, (laughs) after it goes through the hips, it continues into the tail. We didn't get any of the tail, but at least we have basically that full chunk of the hips. And then also part of the hip bones, the ilium, which is attached to the top of that spine. So pretty cool and useful for naming a dinosaur and finding diagnostic features. They think that it's the largest predator found to date from the Bajo de la Carpa formation. And the only other contenders in the area were crocodilomorphs, crocodile type things, and ceratosaurs. And the ceratosaurs that were known from the area are Viavenator and Velocisaurus. <laughs> we haven't talked about Velocisaurus before. No. It's funny because every time I look it up, it's like not to be confused with Velociraptor. And it does seem just intentionally confusing. I'm kind of surprised that the ICZN was like, sure, name a dinosaur Velocisaurus when everybody already knows Velociraptor as a dinosaur. There's a lot of that, though. I guess, yeah. It's a little bit too close for comfort, in my opinion. Oh, I think that happens all the time. But these are very similar dinosaurs, too. They're both, like, small and meat-eating and, I don't know, possibly feathered. I see. They seem too close for comfort. But anyway, they estimate that Tretayanaya was about 8 meters or 26 feet long, And obviously that makes it longer than the other ceratosaurs or than the ceratosaurs from the area. And they also propose 
that megaraptorids were the apex predators after carcharodontosaurids went extinct, which I hadn't seen before, but carcharodontosaurids apparently went extinct about 90 million years ago. And then they think that megaraptorans might have been the apex predators for that period through 5 to 10 million years later. So a pretty short time period, at least in terms of dinosaur reign. <laughs> It'd be like 90 to 85 or 90 to 80 million years. They didn't make it to the end of the Cretaceous in terms of dominating an ecosystem at least. But pretty interesting. I think part of the reason this made so much news is because we know so little about megaraptorans that it's kind of exciting anytime you find a new one. But this one wasn't really enough to fill in any huge gaps. We just know a little bit more now. But it's a new predator and that's always exciting. True. Usually it's the tyrannosaurs that make the big news. I guess this is a potentially tyrannosauroid. So maybe that's <laughs> accounts for some of it. We also have a Thyreophoran dinosaur from the middle Jurassic of Luxembourg. It's basically the title in Geologica Belgica. I guess it's from Belgium. And <laughs> it was written by Dominique Delsate and others. And the title pretty much explains it all. It's only the second Jurassic dinosaur found in Luxembourg. I'm kind of surprised they find any dinosaurs in Luxembourg being such a small country. Dinosaurs were everywhere. Yeah, they, pretty much, as long as it wasn't underwater. And I guess Luxembourg was part of Europe that wasn't underwater. <laughs> they also, from Luxembourg, have found some Triassic remains and some Jurassic theropod remains. But as the title suggests, there have never been any Thyreophoran dinosaurs from the middle Jurassic before. And as a reminder, Thyreophorans are the group that evolved into both stegosaurs and ankylosaurs. And then in this case, the group of Thyreophorans especially is talking about those species before that split. So Thyreophorans also include some of these basal dinosaurs that weren't technically stegosaurs or ankylosaurs, but still are in that group, so kind of like early stegosaur, ankylosaur looking things. <laughs> so they're, you know, mostly quadrupedal. Some of them had scutes, little armor pieces, kind of like ankylosaurs. And in this case, they think that it is more like an ankylosaur because it had what they describe as pup tent shaped osteoderms or scutes. And we've yet to find a stegosaur that has scutes on them. So that makes it more like an ankylosaur or potentially just a basal thyreophoran that isn't quite in the ankylosaur group yet. And it's a very keeled scute, which to me almost looks like a plate. It's so pointy. <laughs> and since it's from the middle Jurassic about 170 million years ago, it would have made it either one of the earliest ankylosaurs or just a basal thyreophoran that doesn't quite make the cut. Ankylosaurs are pretty rare generally throughout the world, as are stegosaurs and other thyreophorans, but they're especially rare in the middle Jurassic from Europe. So it's really cool to find a thyreophoran from there. And ankylosaurs are even less common than stegosaurs, so it's a pretty rare find. Is that why you like them so much? No, I like them because they're big and tanky. <laughs> especially ankylosaurus. This guy wasn't quite that big, probably. Although it's really hard to tell because all they found, unfortunately, was just that one scute. So we really can't tell much about it. It's 
given a name of MHNL BM766, because the one skewt obviously wasn't diagnostic enough in order to name a species after, but the MHNL part of that means that it's housed at the Luxembourg Natural History Museum. And I don't think I dug through their website quite a bit that they have any dinosaur on display yet. So maybe this will be the impetus to get some dinosaurs in the museum. I hope so. <laughs> I hope at least this one goes on display. It's pretty cool looking skewt. Yeah. Next, we have some news about the Tumblr Ridge Museum Foundation, the Peace Region Paleontology Research Center and Dinosaur Discovery Gallery in Tumblr Ridge, British Columbia in Canada. It has closed, hopefully temporarily. It's kind of unclear. So what happened was the district of Tumblr Ridge denied a request for a grant in aid of $200,000. So in early March, the Tumblr Ridge Museum Foundation gave notice to its five staff members. And that's so that they could conserve funding so that the whole thing lasts until at least the end of the year. And the society and the museum, just some background, they were established back in 2000 after dinosaur tracks in the area were found. And hundreds of dinosaur bones and footprints have since been discovered there, including a tyrannosaur trackway and the only known footprints of Therizinosaurus. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So the museum and these findings led to the area becoming a UNESCO global geopark. But then now there's questions over whether the geopark and the museum are overlapping in their work. And yeah, the Council of District of Tumblr Ridge said that they're concerned with how the funding is used and they want the Museum Foundation and Geopark Society to agree on how to work more closely together before they're granted more money. And Rich McRae, the Peace Region Paleontology Research Center curator, said that the museum just needs a better funding model because they have to fight for this every year. And the worry is that if the museum shuts down permanently, then their collection may not be able to stay in British Columbia. There might not be enough space. Oh. Yeah. So hopefully they can work things out and maybe find a more sustainable model for the future. Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. I really like these types of museums that are where the action is. Mm -hmm. So I think Phil Curry had said in one of his talks that when he was growing up, there was no dinosaur museum in Alberta but there was the one in Toronto and everything went to the Royal Ontario Museum. And it was such a big deal for him when Alberta finally got its own dinosaur museum because so many of the dinosaur fossils are from Alberta. And a lot of dinosaur fossils are also from British Columbia. So it'd be nice if Tumblr Ridge kept its dinosaur museum. It's also kind of ironically up near Grand Prairie where the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum just opened. <laughs> Kind of a hard place to have museums, though. Not a lot of traffic. Yeah, well, different province, but yeah. Yeah, only about, looks like 100 kilometers away, maybe. It's not a far drive. No, not if you're going that far, because you have to go far to get there from just about anywhere. <laughs> so we'll keep an eye out for other news articles about this. We've got some exhibit news. So on April 7th, Mystic Aquarium in Stonington, Connecticut is going to have a new exhibit called Jurassic Giants, A Dinosaur Adventure. And the exhibit cost them apparently half a million dollars, and it features life-size dinosaurs, some animatronic, including Stegosaurus and Triceratops. There's a dozen of them. They were shipped from China and unwrapped at the end of March. Actually, I really liked the photos that showed them all wrapped up. <laughs> the exhibit's going to be on display for about a year and be part of a regular admission ticket. Cool. Uh, half a million dollars, though, for a dozen. Seems like a steal. Yeah. 
or maybe a lot. Depends on what you're comparing it to. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> in Syracuse, New York, Rosamond Gifford Zoo's getting a new exhibit called Dinosaur Invasion, 101 Days of Dinosaurs. The exhibit's going to open in late May, Memorial Day weekend in the U.S. and be open through Labor Day, the end of summer. And they're going to have life-size dinosaurs, including Baryonyx, T-Rex, and Brachiosaurus. And the exhibit is meant to help show similarities between dinosaurs and animals in the zoo. And you can explore the link between dinosaurs and birds. And it's also going to show how the zoo is helping endangered species. They're going to have a grand opening event on May 25th. Everything's getting ready now that the snow is thawing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to have these outdoor types of exhibits. Well, it's kind of interesting. We hear more about these exhibits at places like aquariums and zoos, not just mm. museums. True. Everybody likes dinosaurs. Yeah. Although in La Vista, Nebraska, they recently lost their kind of iconic Sinclair dinosaur sculpture. The Sinclair, you know, for the gas company. So the dinosaur, it was taken down and cut apart. And it was part of some corporate decision, part of rebranding for the company. And it was a green sauropod. It had been there for more than 40 years. And there were a lot of people who were upset to see it go. The owner of the station also didn't seem too happy with the decision and is apparently looking at getting a replacement dinosaur after they figure out the rebranding. That's interesting. I wonder, like, what are they rebranding to? Yeah, I thought they were known for their green sauropods. And it's on their logo. Are they changing their logo to something else? I don't know. Couldn't find any details. I don't know why you do that at this point. It's pretty well established. Unless the old sauropod didn't match the motif of their logo or something. I don't know. Weird. I have no idea. Yeah. But in, I guess, lighter news, and also just circling back to what you were mentioning, Garrett, things are thawing out and mm -hmm. summer's coming. There's a giant inflatable dinosaur sprinkler that you can buy for your yard. <laughs> it's made by a company called Big Mouth Inc., <laughs> which is kind of funny, you buy this big T-Rex thing. It's about six feet tall. And it's a green T-Rex, and it sprays water from its nose. It costs about $50. And it looks like a really cartoony kind of T-Rex with its tail dragging. But in the pictures, the kids look like they're having a lot of fun. So you inflate it, and then it sprays water out of its nose, just kind of in a continuous stream? I think so. They also have other ones, like a giant unicorn, but it's not dinosaur-related, so, you know. Yeah, no one cares about that. <laughs> <laughs> And then in game news, we've got Jurassic World Evolution coming out and they set a release date of June 12th, which I guess is about a week before the movie comes out or when the movie comes out, if you're lucky enough to be in the UK where they get it early. <laughs> you sound so bitter. <laughs> I'm not jealous. <laughs> so I pre-ordered it and I'll be playing it probably on Twitch. I'm not really sure. I want to share some of my initial reactions. I'll have to figure out how to do that. But... Definitely will be playing it when it comes out. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now for our interview with Dr. Brandon Peacock. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Brandon Peacock, who is the Meeker Postdoctoral Fellow at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, and his research focuses on the ecology of terrestrial animals from the Permian and Triassic, which includes the earliest known relatives of dinosaurs. And he's been on expeditions in Africa, Antarctica, and all around the U.S., and in 2015, he published the first account of Washington State's first dinosaur, which was a theropod. So jumping right into it, what's your role at the Field Museum? I'm a research scientist. So all day, every day, actively pursuing research projects, preparing fossils we've pulled back from the field, writing papers, writing grants, all that kind of stuff. And then wherever I can fit it in, doing public outreach, doing events at the museum for the public and for uh, adult audiences and things like that. (laughs) Nice. So what are you working on now? Oh, man, we got a lot. I'm juggling a lot of balls right now. So as you mentioned, so I've done a lot of field work in Africa, and so I've got a couple grants in that I'm waiting to hear back on, fingers crossed, uh, to return. So we've got these ecosystems that we have, we think, on the Permian, leading up to the biggest mass extinction of all time at the uh, Permo-Triassic boundary. And so we think we might have a couple of uh, different uh, ecosystems through time. And if that is the case, we have to confirm it, then that means we can actually talk about like how things fell apart leading up to the extinction, which would be really exciting. And then other than that, I mean, we just have tons of new species from all those places that you mentioned earlier. So I got a paper in review right now about uh, a new species from Antarctica of dinosaur relative, little archosaur thing, and then a couple more from Africa that are in the works. So it's busy. Are you on the Antarctic? Do you say Arctic or Antarctic? Ant, Antarctic. Are you on the crew with Matt Lamana? No, no. So my Antarctic work has been uh, much lower in section. Those guys are down on the peninsula under South America doing Cretaceous work. And we are over under New Zealand in the Transantarctic Mountains, actually kind of closer to the South Pole, where there's Triassic and a little bit of Jurassic rocks. So like I worked on the Krylophosaurus quarry really briefly in 2010. And then um, most of my work then was down in the lower part of the Triassic, like right after the big mass extinction. And we found a couple little reptiles and a 
couple mammal things like Lystrosaurus, which is really famous, little Dicynodont that's all over the world. The other side, other side of the continent. So you said it was close to the South Pole. So that was like mainland Antarctica. Oh, yeah. Deep in. Like we had to take multiple different planes like that don't have wheels. The planes have skis instead of wheels. And then to go there, like if you think about it, if you want to find fossils, you need to have bedrock exposed so you can walk around and look for them. And the only place in that continent, really, that has exposed rock that isn't the islands under South America are up in the middle of the continent where the mountains poke out of the ice. So like every morning we're waking up in our tents and, you know, it's the sun never sets and you get some breakfast and then you get in a helicopter and fly to this mountain. And if you want to check out the next locality, you got to take a helicopter ride. I mean, everywhere you go, it's pretty ridiculous <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. It is. It, it absolutely was really crazy. So the guy I did my PhD with, Chris Cedor, who's a curator at the Burke Museum, he's down there right now with other people from the Field Museum, actually. Uh, and they just finished another season. So we hadn't been back since 2010, 2011, over that new year. And uh, they just came back from the field. So they're all they just got on Twitter a couple of days ago, and they're posting pictures of stuff. And oh, I just can't wait to hear how it went. Because there's only been six or so seven maybe like expeditions down there to the to those mountains so like the sampling is pretty light so every time we go you know you're gonna find new stuff and it's exciting that's cool yeah yeah is there like any wildlife when you're that far inland no there's nothing <laughs> so there was like a um a buddy of mine who's also a grad student at the time and then roger smith who uh used to be in charge of the south african museum in cape town he and Adam and I, the other grad student, we were three people in a tent for a week and we were digging up a big temnospondyl, big amphibian skull. You know, it's like three feet long, finding some other things. And it took us a week to do it. And so we just had the helicopter leave us there. And we were hanging out around the little gas stove one night and we realized like there was no visible life for like 28 miles in any direction that wasn't just the three of us. There's no birds, there's no plants, there's no lichens, there's no... There literally is no living organisms that are visible with your naked eye. It makes like the middle of the Sahara Desert or something seem like just the Garden oh, of Eden. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's tons of spiders and little darkling beetles and geckos and stuff. Yeah, the Sahara is teeming. So how often do you get to go out in the field? Like most paleontologists, I'm out in the field every summer one way or another. So I've got some sites I'm working on with collaboration with the Burke uh, in petrified forests in Arizona. So those are Triassic sites where we're finding lots of really interesting crocodile and dinosaur, crocodile relatives and early dinosaurs. And so I do that every summer. I do a thing in Montana every summer with this program called the Dig Field School, where we take K through 12 teachers from around the U.S. and actually some from Canada too, out to the Hell Creek. And, you know, they get to dig up Triceratops and T-Rex and do all that. The more exotic field work, like Africa and Antarctica, you know, that happens when we get all the money lined up. So Antarctica was a one-time thing for me. And like I said, I've got grants in the works for going back to Africa, but I've done that, you know, a handful of times throughout, uh, throughout the last couple of years. So that's like, yeah, I'd say every few years for the big stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about your research? You mentioned a little bit already, but involving the end Permian extinction and recovery period? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that the fossil record is really great at, if you were to ask people, you know, what can we learn from fossils? What are fossils able to tell us that, you know, we can't get from other sources of information, you know, from the present day, basically. And, um, you know, transitions are one. So you want to show me a fish, you know, walking on land or a whale going back into the water, like fossils show you those evolutionary transitions. And that's incredible. But I think the other thing and the thing that kind of like got me as I was starting my like real grad school studies was 
mass extinction. So we're probably in one right now. And if we're not in one in some technical way, we very easily could be, you know, depending on whatever your definition of it is, relatively. And so you can't do an experiment on mass extinctions. You can't set half the Amazon aside and like burn it down and take notes, right? And so how do you do that? And so, well, one thing is you can look at the fossil record where there's, you know, five big mass extinctions, you know, that people call the big five. But, you know, the cutoff for those five for like what makes them a mass extinction, different people have different cutoffs for, you know, how many species level attacks they have to go away to qualify as a mass extinction. And there's other events that don't quite break those boundaries, but they get close. So, you know, there's like six, seven, eight, maybe like really big disturbances in Earth history. And so if we kind of take all of those together and do our best to figure out, you know, what caused them exactly and uh, how long they took and whatever, then we can look at how life took the hits and how life evolved and diversified in the aftermath. Because obviously, everything you love watching on the BBC has successfully had ancestors that survived all these events. But, you know, by looking at those, quote unquote, awful moments in Earth history, when stuff's going bad, you know, we can get a better idea of what's going on now. And I think that's like a really inspiring thing. And so, you know, sometimes I sit there and I'm looking at my mountain of bones and I'm like, maybe I should really be actually out there doing like conservation stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Because like, you know, I've heard people joke before that like the people who do paleontology, you know, trying to get at like the details of a mass extinction, they're just like publishing autopsies like, (laughs) you know, but, but, um, I mean, I, I think it is a lot more than that. And the, and Permian mass extinction is so exciting because it is the biggest one. Right. And so it's, and it's also very compelling because it happens seemingly across all different types of environments and ecosystems and animals. So you have to understand an event that harmed and caused massive die-offs in like the deep ocean and on like reefs and shallow water and on land and among plants and among carnivores and among herbivores, like everything goes. And so like to come up with like, you know, trying to understand the details of what must have happened then to do that, I think in and of itself, you know, regardless of implications, is just like a really exciting thing to try to get at. Yeah, it is really interesting. People ask me sometimes about, well, people, I think, ask anyone who talks about dinosaurs about like why they went extinct and like why other things didn't go extinct. And it's a really hard question to answer because it's so complicated. You start by saying that dinosaurs didn't go extinct and there's 11 dinosaurs. <laughs> Species. <laughs> I do. And then after I get an eye roll, I, <laughs> I answer the actual question. But I think that's fun. So, like, so the one that you're talking about, the end Cretaceous, the Cretaceous paleogene mass extinction, that one is so, like, that's in everybody's head. That is what people think of when they think of mass extinction. And that's a little bit unfortunate only because that one is totally unique. It's a giant space rock that hits on like a Tuesday. And maybe volcanoes going off in India were causing problems around the world for a million years beforehand and that does seem to look like that's probably happening but who knows if it would have like really like caused a huge mass extinction and then all of a sudden there's a space rock that absolutely blows up north america and causes all these awful effects and that's really compelling and dramatic but it's there's none none of the other events are like that and certainly what we might be doing as humans is not like that (laughs) it's not a Tuesday, everybody's great. And then Tuesday night, the asteroid hits. And then Wednesday, a lot of stuff's dead already, you know, so that's tough. But one thing I was going to say, because, you know, you brought up talking to people about that extinction is a lot of people don't understand that, like even birds, they took a big hit at that extinction. And so did crocodiles and turtles and like mammals took huge hits. Uh, North America had like tons of uh, 
animals on um, sometimes of mammals like on the marsupial side of the tree, not our side of the mammal tree. And then the extinction like killed a bunch of them. And then after the extinction, placental mammals like you and I and whales and donkeys and everything, they're still around and they're less affected. And who knows if that's chance or not? You know, there might not be any real biological uh, driver there. But like mammals survived and turtles survived or whatever. But I mean, they took hits with the exception of maybe like bony fishes. Like nobody really had a great time 66 million years ago. It's just dinosaurs. Big ones anyway. Yeah. We were talking to Sean Gulick about it a little bit, and he was saying it was like the largest animals of every single type of animal went extinct, including like phytoplankton. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. And like lots of these, uh, you know, there's other, we would have called them protists 50 years ago, you know, these marine planktonic forms. Like, yeah, that's right. So that then kind of brings it into like a more, I think, interesting space of thinking about it where, okay, so it's not like what animals or what plants survived. It's like, you know, what traits, what ecological aspects of these things, in this case, you're talking about maybe body size, you know, if you're a certain size, like that's just in most of the cases that has its, these features that come with it, you know, you can move around more efficiently, but you need more energy, blah, blah, blah. And then you just change the system enough where things are bad and those big things can't sustain themselves. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a mammal or a crocodile or whatever. I think that's amazing. Or plankton. <laughs> or, yeah, absolutely. Or plankton. Yeah, the Permian is really, I really like that extinction in terms of on a <laughs> psychological <laughs> you know, sort of yeah. scientific level because it also kind of kicked off the reign of dinosaurs too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can really, I think this is extremely scientific thing to say, but I absolutely think it's okay to think about, you know, the Permian extinction wiped out a lot of terrestrial animals that early reptiles were living like kind of alongside, you know, like uh, a lot of these things, therapsids, right? Mammal relatives like dicynodonts and gorgonopsians, they all took these hits. And then the aftermath, smaller bodied things radiate. And that includes some of the smaller therapsids like cynodonts that eventually become us mammals. And, uh, you know, the little, little dinosaur guys and like the little crocky guys that get bigger really quickly, they fill up this niche space. And then, you know, you go forward in time, 150 million years or whatever to 66 million years ago and big stuff takes a hit again little stuff ekes through but the little stuff gets big and diversifies pretty quickly i mean only 10 12 million years after the asteroid the little mammals that all pretty much were small bodied things they did different stuff some lived in trees some lived in the ground okay fine but only 10 12 million years after the extinction there's like early whales and early bats and early hoofed animals and carnivores like so mammals did something and dinosaurs and other reptiles in the triassic did something you know after these awful events and that is like a part of it it's interesting to talk to people like in the public about how mass extinctions i think are to be avoided but as long as some stuff survives an awful event, I mean, it seems like we see that there's like new radiations and new forms that come after that. That's part of it, right? I mean, that's the other half of the <laughs> the bad, bad stuff. Yeah. And it is, it's interesting too, because it's like the mass extinctions tend to mix up the hierarchy of kind of who's dominating the ecosystem. So being humans that are dominating the ecosystem now, you kind of want to keep the status quo. <laughs> Yeah. Well, also like this is not, now we're going to where I have no scientific expertise. This is just me talking. But like I can't really envision a situation where humans go extinct because we're just way too resourceful. And if we all every nuke goes off, then OK, fine, that, that's right. But if it's just like, you know, we ruin our food sources and there's mass starvation, everything like that, like you could lose this society that we live in. And everything could be awful and we wouldn't be extinct, but we'd be like back in the Stone Age. That's 
I guess that's possible. When I talk to people about the extinction and uh, the Permian extinction, sorry, and they we get into these kind of topics, you know, which aren't really scientific, it's like, they're like, oh, so extinctions are just like part of Earth history. And, you know, there's just something that happens. And it's like, yeah, except like we're not a volcano or an asteroid. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we could choose maybe if we wanted to. You know, this isn't an inevitability if it's just like monkeys burning plants from 400 million years ago all the time. Like, we just don't have to set those fires. I don't, not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, very true. Speaking of like what causes mass extinctions, is there a prevailing theory on what caused the Permian extinction? Yeah. When I was first like getting into the Permian and Triassic and, and trying to understand it, this was maybe eight years ago now. I was like, oh my gosh, because there were so many different theories and so much literature, this like whirlwind of different causes and implications and all that. And I've kind of seen, like in my own understanding growing, and then like more recent publications, everybody's sort of like centering around this massive amount of volcanism, big volcanoes in what's now Siberia. So, you know, at the Permo-Triassic extinction, there's Pangaea is a thing, you know, all the continents are connected. And in Siberia, there's just these absolutely massive basalt flows, you know, not exploding volcanoes that are cones with lava coming up the top, just this big oozing province of magma become, well, I guess it's lava once it comes up on the surface. And that's changing, you know, the composition of the atmosphere. And you get lots of downstream effects of how that would acidify the oceans and warm the planet. And there's lots of things with sulfur compounds. And then there's acid rain. And like people go out and do different work. You know, somebody's a paleobotanist or somebody works on invertebrates or somebody's a stratigrapher. And everybody's sort of like comfortably coalescing around getting at like this massive volcanism is really what's driving this like basically environmental degradation. And the extinction itself is, I think the lowest estimate I've seen is like 60,000 years and the upper is close to 200. So you, know, you could really take a, take a minute to like let those numbers in your brain for a minute. But like even if it's the low estimate that's right and like the environmental perturbations are taking place over 60,000 years, you would be alive. There could be, you know, the rise and fall of Egypt and all that so many different times, you know, 5,000 years ago. And you would never know that like you're in a mass extinction. Mass extinctions are recognizable when you look backwards and you see giant ticks or divots in this curve of life. But except for the one at the Cretaceous where there's a space rock, like the other ones, it's not going to be super obvious when you're in it. I've said that to like the public before and they're all like, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, there's still pandas. And I'm like, that's true. (laughs) But, um, you know, we can get into more of that if you want, but um, everybody's pointing it. And you can look at, if you Google it, you can see the huge cliffs and rock formations made out of this lava. I mean, it's absolutely enormous that, you know, it's still being eroded in Siberia today. And the other thing that's actually kind of, I think this is fun, but it's just, that's my own adjective. Those lava flows burned through, because the Permian, of course, is after the Carboniferous. It burns through lots of very organic rich sediments that were laid down in previous times and so you know the coal that we dig up in pennsylvania and wyoming and you know all that in china it's the same it's a lot of coal from the carboniferous period and so it's you can sort of think of the volcano burning through a bunch of fossil fuels as well as the fact that it just is a volcano and I think that's outrageous because then you can say, if you want to talk about today's events, you could say, like, we're being the volcano right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. So that's a weird combination then, because then you've got all that carbon dioxide, like you say, which is going to acidify the ocean. But you'd also have a lot of sulfur, which would create 
a lower or higher albedo, lower albedo, reflecting solar rays either way. <laughs> then there's, it's very complicated, right? And so like when I first started my graduate studies, you know, I was just so lost in all of that because it's, there's these conflicting things. And of course that happens today. I mean, you know, we, I don't want to keep bringing it back to today. That's what I'm, that's what I keep doing. But like, you know, if you replace forests with agriculture, it becomes much more reflective. And so there's a lower albedo, you know, so like, that's true. And, you know, there's going to be, you know, effects that, you know, dampen each other or whatever and or in, reinforce one another. There's a lot, you know, it's always very complicated. But one thing that's interesting, you know, you talk about those sulfur compounds. I mean, there's pretty good evidence for acid rain chemically. And then paleobotanists have long noticed that there's these plant die offs, especially in the southern hemisphere. So, like the Karoo Basin in South Africa is like definitely the best record for land living vertebrates. And like, so, you know, paleobotanists have their observations. And then sedimentologists, people are studying just like how the fossils are being deposited of just animals like they always would. They can see that like river courses become like much like straighter and rougher instead of being more meandering. And that has been hypothesized to be tied to, you know, these big plant die-offs. And so you don't have stable banks and blah, blah, blah. And then there's people who work in the oceans. They study the reefs and the invertebrates. This is, you know, this is when trilobites take their last breath and everything like that. There's huge amounts of terrestrial discharge, big rocks and cobbles from the land that goes up. The amount of that goes up right at the boundary. And that ties really well with like more violent rivers, which maybe are more violent because there's not any plants to hold the banks together, blah, 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 blah. So there's these different observations that very different scientists make that are all like, like I was kind of alluding to earlier, like consolidating on this idea about how things got messed up. Interesting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's what I mean. Like I constantly am learning new things about it, even though it's like the thing I look at a lot. I look at animals before and after, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with the details of the mechanism of the extinction, but you know, I want to know about it. And it's just amazing because geologists are always finding like new ways of analyzing things or, or looking at the data or, you know, look, I would never, you know, would I've ever thought to look for cobbles of rock from the land out in the ocean as like a confirming? No, but that's incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyway, not a lot of dinosaurs so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess moving on to dinosaurs. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about your discovery of Washington State's first non-avian dinosaur. Oh, absolutely. There you go. Non-avian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. So two guys who are big friends of the Burke Museum here in Seattle were out under permits collecting invertebrate fossils out on this little island called Susha Island that is like almost Canada. So it's these islands. Like if you come to Seattle and you want to go whale watching and see orcas, you're going to go out on a boat in the San Juan Islands. And Susha is like just barely on the American side. It's really far north. And so they were out there looking for marine invertebrates. There's lots of nice ammonites and belemnites and clams and snails from these like muddy rocks. So this is like rocks from the bottom of the ocean. This was way off the coast in the Cretaceous when these rocks were being laid down. And they just stumbled upon a, a piece of bone. They recognized it as being something pretty cool. And they sent the curator of the Burke a photo and he showed me the photo. And I was like, oh, my God, because it's obviously like a big vertebrate. And so, you know, it's ocean rock. It's the Cretaceous Campanian. So 80 ish million years about how old we think those rocks are. And so we just assumed it's going to be like a plesiosaur or a mosasaur or something. So like the next weekend we went out, me and another grad student and some Burke Museum volunteers and our collections manager and our preparator. And we just, you know. Got waited. This was on a beach, by the way. So we'd like go in right as the tide was leaving. And we only had, you know, a few hours to like try to get a rock saw in and cut this chunk of bone out. 
uh, before the tide came back in. And it definitely did. And we got wet and it was ridiculous. But after we were with it for not even 10 minutes, myself and you know some of the people with were like, oh, this is definitely not plesiosaur or mosasaur. Like this is a big, massive piece of a limb bone. And it's definitely, it was the side that was up was, had been eroded by the surf and like see that it was filled with mud. It was like a big hollow bones. So we're like, oh yeah, this is probably a dinosaur. And so, you know, we got it out, got it back. It took a while to get prep on it in the lab, you know, to get all the rocks off. It wasn't, it's not a very pretty bone. And so it wasn't a huge priority because, you know, people have their real research projects going on. But then when the Burke found out we had it, they were like, oh my gosh, yeah, let's get on this. And so we got it all prepped. And uh, Chris Cedor and I went up to the Royal Tyrell Museum in uh, Alberta because we don't have as very much in terms of big dinosaur bones at the Burke Museum. So we had to go up there and we're like, okay, let's check. It's North America. It's 80 million years ago. So horned dinosaurs. Okay, no. Duckbills. Uh, ankylosaurs. No. And we're going through and like we kept coming back to some big theropod. I mean, if it's North America 80 million years ago, pretty much probably, yes, a Tyrannosaur. And we found a Displetosaurus femur at the Royal Tyrell Museum that was absolutely like a dead ringer. It was like perfect. You know, it's a gorgeous femur. And we have this nasty chunk that's got a big ridge on the back, the fourth trochanter, which is, you know, a muscle insertion site and some other details. And you put them next to each other and like, oh, my God, done. And it was so awesome. So we like made a deal with them and traded some stuff. And so we have a big cast of that Displetosaur femur now at the Burke. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was great. And so I actually had done another paper earlier with Greg Wilson and some of his colleagues from Mexico on a Tyrannosaur metatarsal from Baja, California. And so it was really funny that I got involved with this Washington project because like there's like a handful of theropods known from the West Coast. The West Coast is like super depauperate. There's not a lot of places to find mesozoic big dinosaur fossils on the west coast you got to go into the interior and like here i am like now i did one in baja now i'm doing one in washington anytime a paper comes out and someone's got like a pterosaur fragment from central california i'm like always oh yeah they're gonna cite my stuff because (laughs) there's not not a lot of material known and so that was the other half of the paper was sort of like going over the dinosaur record of the west coast super fun and like i just knew that the you know we all knew that the public was going to have a great time with it because you don't need to be a scientist to understand washington first and dinosaur like everybody's <laughs> in you know that's a good good story and it was really fun i mean so this is some meat-eating dinosaur that died we think on the coast on the mainland where it probably was supposed to die and then somehow this hunk of bone ended up out in the ocean so who knows how that happened exactly storm or you know near a river system who knows but it was pretty beat up. But So not necessarily a Displetosaurus? Well, you can't say. And that was, that was really hard. So if you actually go, the paper's at plus one, so anybody could read it if they wanted to. I kind of had to walk through the reasonably around in the Cretaceous theropod <laughs> clade. <laughs> you know, like, is it an abelosaur? Well, no. Is it a spinosaur? Well, probably not. Like, because we really didn't have very much anatomy, right? And you have to be able to get specific. And so I kind of like parse it all down to where it's like, all right, you guys, this thing is either a dinochirid, like a giant ornithomimosaur, which you guys, I assume your listeners know what that is, or it's a tyrannosaur. And by the way, North America has like 11 tyrannosaurs from this time. So I'm going to call it a big theropod because this is a scientific paper, but <laughs> it's a tyrannosaur. <laughs> <laughs> but what can you say? It was really fun. It was like a total distraction from my, you know, dissertation and the, you know, quote unquote, real work I was supposed to be doing. But it was it was really fun. Got to be on NPR and people loved it. And it was a 
It was a little fun. It was a great project. Also, what was it? Washington was the 37th state to have a dinosaur. That's by my reckoning. So Kirk Johnson is the director of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, and he's a Seattle kid. So he worked at the Burke in like high school and stuff. So he was into this, like when I told him about it. And uh, it's going to be in him and Rachel. They have that book, Cruising the Fossil Freeway, which maybe people know. They got another one coming out this year. I think it's Cruising the Fossil Coast, where they go up from Mexico up to Alaska. Oh, so you'll be in it. Well, the dinosaur will be. I don't know if I'll be. I kind of doubt me. But but like I, he was so excited about it. And yeah, it was really fun to, I don't know, just get involved in something like that. Like, because that was really like, it felt like a really like, you know, science for the people. Like we used our expertise not to do anything that's going to be like a big grant or something or you know, some really important new finding. Like, it's not surprising that there's a big tyrannosaur on the West Coast of North America and the Campanian. That's not a surprise. But it was just really fun. And so I, you know, I counted those 37 states or 36. And I figured Washington was 37. And then I brought up uh, Kirk a second ago because we talked to them and like the Smithsonian, of course, has records of things like that. And they were like, yeah, I think I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had to like, do all these weird things. We're like, wait a minute. If someone was digging a well in Wisconsin, like, did they ever like accidentally, did they hit, you know? Because there's there's Jurassic and Cretaceous rock underneath in Michigan and Wisconsin in some places. But like, anybody ever found anything? I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what was funny. It was like, sit there and argue about Delaware. And then someone's like, no, no, there's footprints from the 1700s. People, okay, good. Okay, fine. Delaware, check. Like, you know, like, we have to go around. What about Hawaii? Well, Hawaii just was born in the Miocene. So Hawaii obviously didn't have anything. So that's no, no Hawaii. So one of, the, one of the things we said that was sort of funny and hard to put like big verification behind was we said, Washington's the 37th state to have a dinosaur fossil and will probably be the last, you know, because there's no way Vermont's going to pull it off now. It's all just granite and <laughs> Cenozoic rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, though. Someone's going to dig a well like in Norway when they found the what was it? A piece of a Pladiosaurus or something like two miles down. And they're like, oh, look at this. We found a dinosaur. Yeah. Have you guys ever been out to like Montana, you know, or like the Badlands and the, on the high plains? Yeah. When you're driving between those outcrops, like it always is so crazy to me that like, yeah, yeah, there's like two or three triceratops over here and whatever. But when you're driving on the highway, like you're just on top of rocks like that. And so there's like 40 square miles and if it goes down 300 feet or whatever thick the formation is, the volume of rock that's underneath your tires is outrageous. And it's definitely full of pterosaurs and triceratops and dromaeosaurs. And they're all in there. And there's just this teeny tiny amount that's like currently badlands that are being eroded. And we find everything in that little sliver. And so like, oh, yeah, like Michigan's got dinosaurs underneath it, but like we're not going to find them. <laughs> <laughs> We need that Jurassic Park tool where they like shoot a gunshot and then like see the resonance of the rock and go like, okay, we're going to dig that direction. That's the real thing, right? From like, like the people in the nineties did that for like a hot second. Like really? That was, really? Yeah. Wow. The, um, I forget Dave Gillette, who's at the museum in Northern Arizona and some other people, they did it when they found Seismosaurus, the big sauropod in uh, Jurassic of New Mexico. Like they have a part in their book where they like, I don't know if the dress park did it first. I'm pretty sure they did it first or somebody told them about it. But I was like reading that book like as an adult and I came apart in the part with the shotgun shell tire thing. And I was like, oh, God, like from Jurassic Park, that's real. Did they like, did it work in any way? They talked about it as if it did, but like they didn't show us the green pixelated images. I don't think there's some book from the mid 90s called seismosaurus you could you could check i don't think so though yeah it seems like if that did work people would be doing it a lot well the problem is, is like anybody who has you know pulled fossils out of the ground i mean a lot of the times 
the fossils are pretty similar to the rock they're in. Like, there's not a lot of reasons they'd be different. And I'm assuming it's density of the bone makes them look like something when you shoot a shotgun into the ground. I don't know how effective it would or wouldn't be, but I kind of doubt it. I doubt it too, especially like, I forget who we were talking to and they were saying they were CT scanning something and it was so similar that that didn't even help. And it's like, if a CT scan doesn't have the resolution, the shotgun in the ground isn't going <laughs> to do it for no you. No way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, that, that's actually, that's a really good point. Like, yeah, CTs and, um, oh, what's the other thing that you can do to get these high resolution images? Sometimes it's just impossible, you know, and you got to be in there, like really zoomed in and like, there's like dark, dark gray and like pretty dark gray. And you have to like, you know, draw your cursor to delineate like the ulna of whatever you're trying to get out of the ground. And yeah, you're right. If the CT can't do it, the 12 gauge probably. <laughs> probably but we were speaking about Montana. Actually, you this up earlier i wanted to ask more the dig field school through the burke museum so okay how does that program work they have open applications for this every summer and it's usually like 30 40 teachers come out for like a week so i go from the field museum and then uh, people from other universities who are interested people from berkeley people from alabama obviously there's a lot of people from the university of washington the burke are all out there. And what's cool is, especially for the people from Berkeley and uh, University of Washington, they're in the middle of their real field season. Like they're looking for mammals, they're doing geochronology to date the rocks. And these teachers kind of just like swing right in and a bunch of us are there and we kind of walk them through the scientific process and, you know, what are we really doing out here? And then they're just kind of with us for a couple days and they like learn how to collect fossils, they learn how to find fossils. By the end of the day or the end of the week, like, they're doing projects on their own, like where we've given them all these tools and now they're going to go to like a site that they've never been to before or even we haven't really spent much time at. And, you know, they've got to make a map of the stratigraphy. They got to interpret the environment. They got to find and identify the animals and plants that are there. And it's it's really fun. And then they spend the last part of it doing um, like professional development and getting lesson plans put together or like learning about lesson plans for their different schools. So because the whole next school year, they have resources from the dig school that'll go out to them like boxes full of fossils. And so like their students can really sort micro fossils like the next year in like December or February or whatever, and find gars and raptor teeth and crocodile armor and really fun things like that. And it's, it's such a fun program because the teachers are from all over the country. So they all have very different experiences. Their states have sometimes that's really fun. Their states have like really different rules and curricula. And for a lot of them, like they haven't been, oh, I haven't been camping since I was a teenager. And like, this isn't just camping. Like this is like hot weather camping and like, like walking around and digging up dinosaurs and campfire every night and all that. So like for a lot of them, they just like, just love it. And so I really can't say enough about the program because like it's only 30 or 40 teachers a year, which is a lot of work. But over all the years they've been doing it, the number of students that have been reached and all that is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger because teachers who participate once, you know, like they're involved that they don't just teach it you know when they when they teach ninth grade science or second grade science that next fall like they don't just do it for that year like they keep keep doing it and it's really fun just to see them as teachers you know people who are devoted themselves to educating others like when they're the ones that are in there doing the discovering and stuff like they're just they write to us and they talk about how amazing it is to like teach something like this where like they've done it like they've seen triceratops's horns sticking out of the ground like that's really a big deal I just can't say enough about the program. I think it's really great. Is it, are there different schools represented each year? Do these teachers have to apply or something since there's only... Yeah, teach, no, teacher, you can be, come from anywhere. Yeah, anywhere in the U.S. And we had a Canadian last year, so I think it's international now. <laughs> yeah, anybody applies. 
anybody, any educator applies. And I know the dig school is like certified to people get their professional development credits. I think almost every state probably by now. So you know, yeah, sometimes there's teachers who are like, Oh my God, like this is so much better than going to the library and learning about whatever for a weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get my, my PD for this year. How long does it last for like a teacher in the field? They're there for four and a half days or so of like really doing stuff. And then there's like the travel time. So, you know, probably seven or eight days. A lot of them like afterwards or beforehand or, you know, they hit up Yellowstone or Glacier or something like that because they're from New Jersey or Florida or something. And they just, they don't make it out there very often. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. It is. Yeah. You do other public outreach. So the Young Naturalist Society of the Pacific Northwest, what is that? Yeah, I was involved in founding that. It was like a group at the University of Washington, like a group of us who realized like, I know a lot about birds, dinosaurs, and uh, you know a lot about mushrooms and you know a lot about wildflowers. And so we realized like, at least, you know, up here in the Pacific, up in the Pacific Northwest, there's all these natural events that happen every year. Like bird migrations come through, whales come through, wildflowers bloom, glaciers melt, like all these things that are just naturally happening around us. And like, all you have to do is get together with some people who are interested in that kind of thing. And if you all just kind of go out together, you're going to have like a great time. Like they just did something on, you know, New Year's Day, there was a really, really low tide and a super moon. So I wasn't there for it. But the young naturalists were like out on the tidal flats in Puget Sound, like finding giant crabs and snails and all kinds of enemies and all kinds of cool stuff with flashlights under a bright super moon. And so, yeah, that's a program that like I'm not really a part of much anymore. It has legs and it's off on its own now. But we always had these like open invitations for it was like aimed at adults. It says young naturalists, but uh, that was just because we took that name from a group. The group that started the Burke Museum, like the Burke Museum's foundations are in this group called the Young Naturalists from the like 1880s and 1890s. Like uh, these like, you know, early, like the sons of like the big wigs in early Seattle or whatever. So that's why we're called the, or that's why the organization is called the Young Naturalists. It's not because you're supposed to be, you know, like a cool 20 something. But anyway, Field Museum has a lot of outreach stuff too. And so it's just amazing to, like, I always jump at opportunities like that because I think it's a really important job of scientists to make it really clear that, you know, we're just people. And like, when you ask us a question about something, we're going to be like, oh my God, yeah, I know. So anyway, like, that's why at this conference, this guy said, or she said, because science is is not, you guys know this, I'm sure, but you know, science isn't some book of facts, like it's super active. And, you know, you got to talk to people to find out. And I think scientists, it's kind of up to us to really get out there and chit chat. Definitely. (laughs) Well, the Field Museum does a lot of fun events. I remember reading, you did some kind of uh, pop-up bar event. Recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just one of those last week. A scientist walks into a bar. Yeah, <laughs> I was the scientist. That was great. That was really fun. It's always fun to talk to adults about paleontology. Like, and I'm sure you guys know this really well because everybody is inherently pretty interested. And maybe they don't want to like read about it all day, and it's their job. Like maybe some of us would choose. But like, if they have the opportunity to have a beer and talk about the past, the big past, like people are into it. So it was really fun because we talked about extinction. Like you know, you and I. What you guys and I have been talking about, but you know, there was all the classic stuff about why are T-Rex's arms so small and is Brontosaurus real and you know, that kind of stuff that's like, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get that out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually talk about stuff, but it was great. Oh my gosh, so much fun. And so the Field Museum is doing that event next. I'm going to do a plug for it. It's doing that event next month and every month this year at this bar called The Hideout in Chicago. Uh, and the woman doing it next month, her name's Crystal, and she's uh, the, one of the curators of the Field Museum, and she does uh, work on aquatic beetles. So it's going to be really cool, and she's funny, but it's going to be really different from my uh, 
paleo one. Those are cool events. And then the Field Museum also has the Antarctic exhibit coming up, right? Yeah, yeah it does. That's right. <laughs> I'm really excited to see how that comes together. So like Pete Makovicki is heading that up. Some of his postdocs are, are, are you know, friends of mine that are the ones designing it. And it's just, I think it's going to be a really cool exhibit. I don't really know what I'm allowed to say or not, but I know there's going to be some, I'll say impressive dinosaur things, both artistic and scientific. So that's going to be really interesting because one of Pete McAvee's postdocs, his name is Eric Gorsick. He's publishes on sauropod dinosaurs. He's been down to the peninsula with that Lamana group. And so they've found, you know, so I've been to one side and Pete's been to that side and then Eric's been to the other side. So it's really funny because like, that's definitely something they're doing. I'm not involved in that, but I like just pop my head in all the time. And I'm like, Hey, so what about this thing? Because I'm like, I've been there. I'm like, you know, one of the uh, few paleontologists who has, and it's, it's funny because they're like, Hey, get out of here. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what's going on, you guys. Uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's coming. That's going to be really fun. And that'll travel around, I think a couple places. I know it's going to Utah and California probably LA. I would think LA because Nate Smith is the paleontologist at the Los Angeles County Museum. And he's like one of the real leaders of Antarctic fieldwork these days. He's down there right now with all those people who are just freshly back on Twitter. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. We're looking forward to hearing about it and hopefully seeing it maybe yeah. in LA. Yeah. That'd be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really am too. So where's the best place for people to find out more about you and your work? Me and my work. Oh, wow. I guess, I mean, I have a website. Like, that's that would be, like, there's links to that. There's, like, all my my papers and stuff. If you want to talk more about, uh, people want to talk about, uh, we haven't really talked about Zambia or anything like that. That's a lot of my work. Yeah, I would say my website. It's just a Google site. <laughs> <laughs> you Google If you Google Brandon Peak, like, that's definitely what you'll find. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I've got the link, so we'll post that in the show notes, too. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to do some updates on that if we're going to send people there. <laughs> You got a but, little yeah, time. Yeah, I'd say that. I'd say that. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. Oh, I'm on. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I mean, um, my uh, I had to come up with a Twitter handle really quickly when I did because I was in London doing stuff in the collections, and Paul Barrett, who's the curator there, he was like, "Hey, I'm going to post pictures to Twitter with the museum's account of like everybody who comes and visits, like showing them using our collection." He's like, "So what's your handle?" And I was like, "Oh, I don't. Oh God, I don't have one yet." And so he's like, "We'll come up with one. I'll be back in like half an hour." And I was sitting there, so like I'm an American, USA born, and all my field work and my research and most of my interests just happen to be in Southern continents, Antarctica and South America, I'm really interested in, but I've never been. And then of course, a lot of my works in Africa. And so I'm very proud of this and I'm setting it up too much already, but it's just my Twitter handle's gone to wannabe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that got a little bit of a laugh. But anyway, <laughs> underscore gone to wannabe and underscore again. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> I was proud of it because it took because it was like a fast turnaround and I didn't really have time to think about it. And then it was like a week later and I was like, yeah, OK. And <laughs> you were still OK with it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's where they could check it out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Yeah, of course. Tell people to, yeah, come to conferences and stuff too. come to the SVP, the Burt Paleo Conference and all kinds of stuff. And the Burke and Field Museums. <laughs> yeah, oh God, definitely go to the Field Museum. Definitely go to the Burke Museum. Absolutely. Burke Museum's getting redone. Uh, there's going to be a brand new building in a, uh, very soon. It's already mostly built and all the exhibits are going to be very cool. I'm really excited about that. And then the Field Museum's got all kinds of renovations going on right now, too. Um, Sue is getting moved. She's not going to be in the main hall. And, and there's going to be very cool sauropods and pterosaurs in the main hall. So it's going to be a cool upgrade. Nice. Thanks again, Brandon, for speaking with us. We love hearing about your work. And one of these days we will make it to the Field Museum. Yeah, we really need to go there. <laughs> well, they've got some new exhibits coming, so 
once Sue is moved and they have the new, I think it's a titanosaur taking its place, then we'll have something new to check out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Metriacanthosaurus, which, as we mentioned earlier, it was, it doesn't actually appear directly in the films, but it is mentioned in some ways in Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And it was also a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube, so thanks. It was a synraptorid that lived in the Jurassic and what is now England. So its name is actually on an embryo cooler in the Jurassic Park movie. And it was also seen in a Jurassic Park brochure, Mm -hmm. which was made as a movie prop. And it's also on the Jurassic World brochure and the Jurassic World website. So that is its connection here. (laughs) I mean, the fact that it was on a cooler is pretty good. That it was written in the movie itself. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and the brochures are pretty funny, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the brochure is especially funny because doesn't it have like six dinosaurs pointed out on a map? And this is one of them randomly. Yeah. It's like there's no Dilophosaurus, but we got this Metriacanthosaurus randomly. Because why not? <laughs> yeah. They got all these dinosaurs to choose from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a Synraptorid that lived in the Jurassic and what is now England. And its name means moderately spined lizard that seems like a a british kind of way to describe something it's moderately spined (laughs) not too spiny just moderately spined well the guy who eventually named it was british so there you go i guess thanks for the confirmation (laughs) yeah but first it was Its bones were originally described in 1923 by Frederick von Huhn, and he classified it as a new species of Megalosaurus, as Megalosaurus parkeri, and the parkeri was named in honor of fossil hunter W. Parker, who found the bones. And he described a hip, a leg bone, and part of a backbone, so there's not too much to go on. But then in 1932, Frederick von Huhn reclassified it as Altaspinax parkeri because of its neural spines, which were kind of tall. Moderately tall, some might say. <laughs> but with altospinax, that sounds more spiny. Yes. Well, so what happened then? It was in 1964, Alec Walker, the British paleontologist, found that the fossils were different enough from altospinax, so he renamed it as a new genus, Metriacanthosaurus. And the name refers to the height of its neural spines, which were taller than megalosaurus spines, but shorter than altospinax spines. Right in the middle. Yep. Like the Goldilocks. They should call it Goldie Spinax. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Metriacanthosaurus seems to be closely related to Yangtranosaurus, and actually Gregory Paul synonymized the two back in 1988, but then in 2007, Darren Nash and David Martell found that they were actually distinct genera. The spines that it had may have made for a low hump, similar to Acrocanthosaurus. As you may have guessed, being a Synraptorid, it was carnivorous. It was medium-sized, estimated to weigh maybe about a ton, but it's not clear how large it was. If you compare it to similar theropods, it may have been up to about 20 feet or 6 meters long. Yeah, it was pretty moderate. I like how often this whole hump versus spine thing comes up. Because looking at modern animals, like I think bison, they sort of have spine-looking things, but then it turns out they have a hump. Oh, yeah. So it's hard to tell just from the bones whether it's a hump or a spine. What if they actually had spines? That'd be so weird. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or if camels had spines, yeah. little spine bumps. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is about Taiwan, since we're in Taiwan right now. <laughs> and it's that Taiwan has Mesozoic rocks but it has never had a dinosaur fossil discovered here. and Yet. Yes, to date. I believe it's because the current island of Taiwan formed about 5 million years ago. It's pretty recent, actually, in terms of how long most continental and islands have been around. And basically, it was formed when the Eurasian plate got sort of shoved on top of the Philippine Sea Plate. So pushed up all these earlier rocks from the continental shelf. So a lot of the rocks actually, since they're on the continental shelf, are relatively old. It's not like Hawaii where it just popped out of the ocean and it's brand new rock. There are rocks as old as the Permian, which are exposed in the central mountain range on Taiwan. And the central mountain range kind of runs north to south. It's actually much closer to the east side of the island than it is to the center. But anyway, it's called the Central Mountain Range. And those Permian fossils that have been found there are the oldest fossils found on the island. There are also some Mesozoic fossils which have been found all over the place. But all of them are marine. So if you like clams, <laughs> they got clams. Clams everywhere. All sorts of clams. <laughs> In fact, in the land bank museum that Sabrina and I were just at, it was like when they showed the fossils that were actually from Taiwan, it was just nothing but clams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I know clams is kind of not the correct term, but we're vertebrate people. So where are you going with clams? There have also <laughs> been <laughs> some dolphins found, which are kind of cool, but those are a little newer than the Mesozoic. One of the most significant paleontological finds in the island have been early humans and proboscideans, which are those mammoth-slash-mastodon-type creatures. And those, both humans and these proboscideans, appear to have arrived in Taiwan when the Taiwan Strait was briefly a land bridge when there was an especially low sea level, probably during an ice age, and they could just kind of walk right on across. Because the Taiwan Strait is very shallow in some places. I think the deepest spot is only 150 meters which is well less than a quarter mile. It's pretty shallow. And I probably spent about two hours digging through different scientific papers trying to find any reference to any sort of dinosaur material on Taiwan, and I couldn't even find a single dinosaur tooth, which usually you can find those just about anywhere. There are dinosaur teeth all over the place, but I couldn't find a single reference anywhere. Doesn't mean it's not out there. Maybe someone has found a dinosaur tooth in Taiwan, but as far as I can tell, no dinosaur material ever. Two hours, well. Yeah. 
I was in a rabbit hole. It was a deep, deep rabbit hole. <laughs> and on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any new episodes or upcoming references to Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. <laughs> and if you want to follow our adventures in Taiwan, then make sure you follow us on Instagram. And we'll also be posting some exclusive stuff on our Patreon feed to our patrons. Yep. Patreon.com slash I know Dino. So thanks again. And until next time. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader